0: For anyone listening, if you've not read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, I am not going to spoil it for you. The Murder of
1: Roger Ackroyd is the third Hercule Poirot novel by Agatha Christie, and it's considered by many to be not only her finest work, but also one of the best examples of detective fiction ever written. In the book, the famous detective retires to the English countryside to grow vegetable marrows which sounds disgusting, but is actually zucchini. I looked it up. Soon his neighbor and friend, Roger Ackroyd, is murdered, and Poirot comes out of retirement to solve the case. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm really excited about today's guest. Valerie Francis is a writer, literary editor, and podcaster who specializes in stories by, for, and about women. I have followed her work for a long time, and I was thrilled for the chance to get to talk to her. As a fellow writer, Valerie is a phenomenal person to learn from. But talking to her as a fellow reader might be even better. She thinks very deeply about story, and we had a great time talking about why this novel works so well. Don't worry, this is a spoiler-free episode, because I know you're going to want to read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd after you hear Valerie tell me why it is the best book ever. Hi Valerie, welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hello, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. You are a writer and literary editor, and you specialize in story structure. Will you tell my listeners what this is about? When we, when we say the phrase story structure, what does that mean?
0: Well, when we're learning how to write. When we go up through school, we all kind of learn the same way in, you know, a formal school system and we're taught to write pretty sentences. We're, we're very focused on the line writing and yes, that's part of what we do a hundred percent. However, all the pretty sentences in the world are not going to save your story. Story structure, having a solid working story is what's going to save your story. So that's basically the, if you think about a sculpture, it's the wire frame that the the sculptor creates mm. first it's the uh if you think of um a, a bridge analogy it's you know those big pillars that's holding the bridge up so story structures does your story work on a, a fundamental level is the engineering <laughs> of your story solid and then once you have like once you've baked your cake, then you can ice it with pretty sentences and metaphors and <laughs> similes and all that kind of stuff and put sprinkles on it. But unless the story actually works, your reader's going to put your book down, your your viewer's going to turn your movie off and and they're gone and they're not going to recommend your book to somebody else. So most of the people that I work with, they can write beautiful sentences. I mean their prose is just to die for but there's no story. So there's, the the characters aren't well-defined, the beginning, the middle and the end aren't well-defined. There's no character arc Uh, and all the the tools and the tips and the tricks of the trade, once they learn those, nah, then they're off to the races. From a reader's perspective, a reader is free to look at a story, whether it's a novel or a Netflix show or their, their favorite TV show or a film or a stage play because they all have the same structure a story has the same structure no matter which medium it's in mm-hmm. and if you're just a consumer i should question say just a consumer but if you're a consumer you're you're reading the book you're watching the movie you shouldn't be aware of it if the writer is doing their job properly it's invisible the the reader the viewer just gets caught up in the show in the story So it's not their job to know that there's a story structure, right? The contract between the writer and the reader is that it's our job as the writer to know how stories work and to practice our craft like anybody else. You wouldn't hire a lawyer who hadn't gone to law school. (laughs) Like, I don't know how my iPhone works. I don't care how it works. I just want it to work. (laughs) <laughs> it's yes. not my job to know how the iPhone works. Yes. <laughs> right? So it's not the reader's job to know how it works. It's our job to know how it works. Mm-hmm. And if they want to think that this it's a magical, mystical, wonderful thing that, you know, God looked down from a cloud and said, I'm going to bestow this person and this person and this person with the writing gifts and everybody else is out of luck. If they <laughs> want to believe that, that's totally cool. However, When that reader decides they want to become an author, they have to take off those rose-colored glasses and understand that this is actually a job with a craft, with skills that you have to learn, and a desk you have to show up at, like every other job. It's not the thing where I'm just going to hang out on the beach all day and wait for the muse to come and dictate a novel. With our business, the perception and the reality have nothing to do with one another. However, the reality is still really cool. Yes. The reality of what we do is still so exciting. Can you give us an example of a book or maybe a movie that you think is perfectly structured? Gone Girl. A modern novel, Gone Girl. The more I look at it, the more my jaw drops. I was going to do it for this show, and then I thought, no, because I will nerd out too much on the details of the craft. Um, It... It's so good. And I've and the other thing is, I've already talked about it for 12 hours on podcasts <laughs> from a craft point of view. Uh, so I thought, oh, let's, let's pick another book. There are so many great books. But Gone Girl, in terms of modern novels, is one that I keep coming back to over and over. And I just think, how did Gillian Flynn do it? If you think of someone like Neil Gaiman or J.K. Rowling or Stephen King or any of those people they started reading and writing when they were seven years old and they read every book they could get their hands on and they were just writing all the time and writing a lot of stuff that was no good and eventually getting better and better so that by the time they publish their books in their twenties and thirties, you know, they have 20 or 25 years of experience and, and writing stuff that's no good under their belt that nobody ever saw. So you can do it that way, or you can sort of explicitly learn the craft, and go to someone who knows what they're talking about and say teach me it's a lot faster it's a lot less frustrating you know Gillian Flynn I have no idea what her background is she's probably a mix of both because you cannot fluke into that level of writing she may not have been consciously aware of what she's doing which tells me that um she has read an awful lot and she's written an awful lot and she's studied an awful lot uh, whether she realized she was studying or not. And then again, she may have gone to school and learned how to do this. I I have no idea. Uh, I am just in awe of, of that novel. And the best part about it is that the reader is completely oblivious to the craft behind it. You just, you get sucked in by the story. And when the writer can do that, it's, it's the best. it's, when you have writers who are overly precious and you can tell that they're using you know, big words that they don't use in their everyday life <laughs> just because they feel they're supposed to, then the reader's attention goes to the big words mm-hmm. and you become very aware that you're reading words on a page. With Gone Girl, I mean, yes, you know you're reading a novel, you know you're reading words on a page, but it transports you right into that world. So the words on the page simply become the medium for the story that's the, – the movie that's going on behind your eyes.
1: Are you able to divorce yourself from your story structure thinking when you're just consuming art for your own pleasure? When you crash at night with your glass of wine, you just want to watch
0: TV. I'm, it's hard to turn off. Mm. I will say that. But at the same time, I'm not really trying to turn it off because I enjoy it. Mm. If I listen to audiobooks, it's very hard for me to analyze an audiobook, so I'm listening to more when i'm just on my downtime i'm I tend to go to an audiobook um but you know it's it's fun and here's the thing when you can see through story, you know how the magic trick is done. so when yes. you know how the magic trick is done, it doesn't make the trick less enjoyable. It makes it more enjoyable. Because you see how on earth the magician pulled it off. A trick that you couldn't even conceive of. How did they come up with that? How did they figure it out? Oh, that's how they did it. Well, now I have even more respect for that magician. So why would I ever want to turn that off? It's too much fun. How did you become a reader? Oh, I can't remember not ever being a reader, mm. to be honest. Uh, my dad's a, a heavy reader when i was little and he didn't read light books either they were all big heavy hard cover books that you can't lie down in the bed and read you'd knock yourself <laughs> out uh you know he wrote but then again he also read james harriet um mm. and he really likes patrick taylor so he, he it's a real wide scope from you know the serious biographies to the the lighthearted just fun stories so i just always watched him reading and i you know, we would getting books out of the school library. I just can't remember not reading them. Read a lot of comic books when I was little. And actually, comics and graphic novels is how my daughter got into reading as well. Because a novel, when the kids are young, is overwhelming. Yes. And it makes them feel stupid if they can't read uh, as well as the, the kid sitting next to them in the classroom. But a graphic novel is not a lot of words. And even if you come across vocabulary you're not familiar with, you have a picture to help you out. To figure out what's going on. So, I mean, we didn't have graphic novels when I was growing up, but there were comic books. So I read a lot of those. I just had fun reading books. I just like how words look on a page.
1: Where do you go in your spare time when you're not reading something for your podcast or that for your work? What
0: section of the bookstore do you hang out in? Well, I love mysteries, which is Mm -hmm. why I chose today's book. Mm That's the genre that I, I am most fascinated with. I think because I've studied it the least, because I'm not sure if I'm entirely ready to know how the trick is done. You know, I still read Agatha Christie and go, how did she come up with these ideas? How, how, does her, how did her mind work? You know, I'm st- I, am fa- I am still very much a fan of that. Uh, now that said, as a writer, I have lots of ideas for mysteries. I'm working on a thriller right now. So I've been, from a craft point of view, heavy into thrillers and making, figuring out what makes those tick. So I will go to um, a mystery or um, like a James Harriet type of book. They're Hmm. just so much fun. Very character, light on plot, heavy on character. What is your history with Agatha Christie books? I can't remember when I started. She's just, she has permeated the zeitgeist. You know, I remember watching TV shows that are based on her work without realizing they were her work. And then I would come across the book and go, oh, I remember something about this. She is just, to me, the epitome of a mystery writer. This is the type of mystery I love, the the intellectual puzzles. I love the fact that it's a game between the writer and the reader who can outsmart who. That's what's happening here. The writer is playing with us, and we as readers are like, oh, yeah, you you think you're that smart? I can solve your puzzle. I'll solve your puzzle. But we don't really want to be able to solve the puzzle. And I admit that with The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, I didn't get it. I fell into every trap that Agatha Christie set for me. I fell into every single one of them. (laughs) And it was delicious. (laughs) Delicious! <laughs> when I got to the end and realized who the murderer was. I thought, "Oh, she got me." She got me. The you. book is nearly a hundred years old, and she still got me.
1: <laughs> is part of the fun for you trying to beat Agatha Christie or whoever the mystery writer is to the to the murderer? Yep. hundred yeah. percent.
0: Are you right? 100%. Are you usually right? Uh, I'm half and half. Now, before I became a writer. I wasn't trying too hard. Now that I'm a writer, I want to know how they do it because I want to write them myself. So now I'm really paying attention to what's going on. And mysteries still have the same story structure that other stories have. So I know what the beginning hook needs to do. So I'm starting to see these things. Uh, Sometimes it's really obvious. You can tell at the beginning who done it. So the question then becomes, how did they pull it off? And if I can't figure out how they pulled it off, if I, whatever question it is I have, if I can't come up with an answer, I'm still happy. <laughs> you know, I, I want to gotcha. I want to get to the end of the book and think, ha, huh, that writer outsmarted me. Fairly. Fairly. Okay. In that thriller group, a couple
1: of months ago, we read this book where The killer at the end, I compared it when we were having our discussion. I compared it to a Scooby-Doo cartoon where we were all chasing over here. And then at the end, the butler goes, you know, rips off a mask and goes, it was me the whole time. (laughs) And it made me realize how important structure is in mystery. I want to be surprised. I I like being surprised and
0: shocked. I don't like it when it's unfair. No, that's breaking the rules. That's like, you know, I earlier I talked about the contract between, you know, the unwritten, the unspoken contract between the author and the reader. For a mystery, part of the contract is that the writer's going to play fair because the the game afoot is that when presented with all of the facts, can the reader figure it out before they're told the answer? That's one of the things I love about the murder of Roger Ackroyd right right in the beginning and all throughout i'm like oh i didn't know that was a clue <gasps> <Yes. laughs> oh i didn't i didn't pick it up and and we all, we've all heard of red herrings so a red herring is a misdirection yes. so you're dangling something over here to take the attention away so that the author, the reader's not looking where you want them to where they would otherwise look great but then sometimes as in the murder of roger ackroyd There are clues that are hiding in plain sight. They're camouflaged. So I call those cuttlefish. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. It makes as much sense as red herrings. Sure. More sense, actually, because, because they're camouflaged. So you have red herrings, but you also have these cuttlefish. And they're all over Roger Ackroyd. Yes. It's just, I mean, it's so well done.
1: Okay, so why don't you tell our listeners what the murder, the plot of, as much as you can, the plot of the murder of Roger Ackroyd.
0: Okay, I will not spoil, I promise. Okay. It's, which means I can't actually tell you very much. Okay. Except go read it. So, Roger Ackroyd, it, it, it's, if you're familiar with uh, Agatha Christie at all, Roger Ackroyd's one is one of her early books, and it's um, all of the, the, the Christie elements are there. So you've got a small town in England with, you know, your cast of locals. The narrator um, is Dr. Shepard. And he is telling the story about his friend, Roger Ackroyd, who has been killed. And he lives with his sister, Caroline, and they have a neighbor who has just come to and they do, this is a new guy. They don't know who he is. Guy who's just moved in. Well, the neighbor happens to be Poirot. So when Aykroyd is killed, po- Poirot is brought in to help with solving the mystery. So I think it's maybe chapter four or five. We have the the typical uh, Agatha Christie thing of we meet all the possible suspects, right? It's all the people living in the house. It's the people... um in Aykroyd's life like his his uh, adopted son, his sister-in-law, his niece, the you know various people in the community, we meet everybody by like chapter 4, chapter 5. Yeah. Cuz Agatha Christie tends to have these closed circles, right? You know, the you know that okay, there's these 15 people, one of them did it. Yes. Now, which one and why and how? So that that's kind of all I can tell you. <laughs> I can't really go any
1: further. So again, without, we can't give, uh, I have to think how to ask you this. Um, is it common in her books that it is narrated by someone other than Poirot himself or it's told from the point of view of mm-hmm. a character, which mm-hmm. really surprised me and I thought was very unusual, but I don't know. Is that is that how she
0: does the, Poirot books? No, typically it's Hastings, his sidekick. So if you think of Sherlock Holmes, you've got Watson as the sidekick. Poirot has Hastings as the sidekick. So as she kind of got into it, Hastings became the one to chronicle Poirot's uh, cases. So this is an earlier one because he in this book, Poirot is retired and Hastings is in Argentina?
1: I'm a big fan of the Louise Penny Inspector Gamache series. Have you read those? Canadian. Canadian, Canadian. I know. See, I knew I would gain (laughs) some points with you for that. Um, But when I read this, I realized how directly Gamache is descended from Poirot. He's clearly modeled on him. You know, that how he's kind of fatherly and he's asking those sort of obscure questions of everyone around him where you think what does that have to do with anything? But then, and he kind of lets everyone else sort out what he already knows. And the sort of the likability and the trustworthiness of him. I I couldn't believe how closely related they were. I
0: was very impressed by it, by Louise Penny. Well, it's the archetype, right? Because it's the master detective story. Like we could say the same of Columbo. You know, that's, you've got this guy who is smarter than the average bear, who looks at life a different way than most, than all the other cops and all the other detectives. That's why they can solve so many crimes. With Poirot, it's his his little gray cells. You know, he's always (laughs) talking about his little gray cells and he becomes very impatient with people who can't keep up. (laughs) And Of course, because Hastings is the stand-in for the reader, who is also not able to go as fast as Poirot, Hastings is is asking the questions that we're asking. And when Poirot is answering him, he's actually giving us the information. Same with Watson, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know how Sherlock's mind works. We don't know what it is he's observing or how he's connecting those clues. Watson is saying, how did you do that? How did you come to that conclusion? And then Sherlock tells him, which means we also know. Inspector Rebus, all the Ian Rankin books, it just takes place in Edinburgh. So he's he's then taken the same type of character. And by that, I mean, you know, Rebus is smart, but he has a different take on the world. And he put him in Scotland as opposed to the English countryside or London or the U.S., And because he's in a different place, it changes how Ian Rankin writes him. It changes how the audience receives him, but it's the same archetype. So it's the same kind of things that just keep rolling out that authors innovate and make different and make special. And when the character is really interesting, like Poirot or Miss Marple or Jessica Fletcher or Rebus – or Columbo. We want to hang out with them. And my understanding is that Knives Out is going to become the same thing.
1: Did you see Knives Out? Yes, we did it on the podcast, in fact. Oh, you did. Yes. So my understanding is that that detective is going to, it's going to be a new cast each time, but the same detective.
0: Knives Out really tapped into our love of these cozy mysteries. Mm -hmm. It's like a game of Clue playing out in front of us. Most people would say that Agatha Christie is the ultimate
1: story formula writer. So what about Roger
0: Ackroyd? What made you choose that so quickly? Well, it was, as a reader, it was the best gotcha ever because I I didn't get any of it. I saw none of it coming, which is, oh, it's just so much fun as a reader Now, you can say, well, okay, it was really early in the genre's history because there couldn't be detective novels until there was a job called detective. And that kind of started around the Sherlock Holmes era. So as a reader, I loved that she won that game, you know, game, set, and match. (laughs) Now, as a writer and as a literary editor if I go back and I read the story again, and even if I analyze the story, it just, it's like Gone Girl, it just gets better and better and better. And it's, although I didn't know it as a reader, I now understand that it's one of the pillars of the genre. Because, you know, there's there's only so many options for who done it, but when I go back in and I look at it, and I see from a craft point of view, just how well she structured the book and just how well she set the puzzle up and just how many cuttlefish there are and red herrings there are, <laughs> every page is important. You cannot fall asleep reading this book. And if you do, if you're reading it late at night and you drift off, go back, <laughs> go back and pick up. You have to know the whole story. And those are the books I love the most. The books where you can kind of you know daydream for 40 or 50 pages, no, no, thanks. No, thanks. <laughs> okay. I, I would like to come back and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll donate that book or I'll, you know, I won't recommend it to friends. I, I like the book that reaches out and grabs me by the throat and won't let me go until the end of the book. And that's true of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. She was really an innovator. It shocked everybody. So there's this one, the Death on the Nile. And then there were none, those are the three that are popping to mind that really made people go, what, wait a minute, what? Yeah. <laughs> and not just the public, but her peers. She's she's known as the queen of mystery for a reason. You know, she is, <laughs> she's the third, her books are the third most popular printed form of reading in history. So she's third behind the Bible and Shakespeare. There's a reason. There is a reason her books are the best. And so, so let's just think about this for a minute. The two best-selling writers in all of history, again, I'm putting Shakespeare in because in, he's plays, I'm thinking novels, um, Agatha Christie and J.K. Rowling, both women. I would just like to say that. <laughs> there you so go take that james patterson <laughs> take that james patterson and if anyone who likes audiobooks the agatha christie audiobooks are stellar hugh frazier who plays hastings in this uh the poirot tv show that i recommended that you watch the yes. the one with david Suchet, he narrates a lot of them he's really good and Dan Stevens narrates a lot of them. Now, Dan Stevens is Matthew Crawley from Downton Abbey. Yes. He also does a really good job. Oh, so I So if you have Audible credits that you want to use, get uh, pick any of the Agatha Christie, really. But I love this one. This would be great on audio. Did you figure out who did it? No, no. no. <laughs> okay, good. The other thing that Agatha Christie does really well, especially in the Poirot books, I, I know the Poirot books better than the Miss Marple books because I like him better as a character. I don't dislike Miss Marple, but there's something about Poirot that just makes me giggle. So he has a very clear sense of justice because we're so used to seeing detective shows where at the end of the show there's cuffs put on the guy and the cops drag him away to jail. We're so used to seeing that today that we assume that that's what's going to happen. And sure, that does happen sometimes in in the Agatha Christie books, but not always, yet justice is always served. So I really love the approach. Oh, and Caroline, um, the sister, actually was the inspiration for Miss Marple. She liked this character so much that eventually she became Miss Marple.
1: Oh, that makes perfect sense.
0: You can see it, can't you? Yes. And, and I the loved readers her. loved her so much. You know, the, she... the busybody. Uh, now, she sort of torqued her up a little because Caroline is not an investigator. She's mm-hmm. just kind of a busybody. But Miss Marple is kind of like that. She's always looking over her fence and she knows she's plugged in. She, she knows is. what's happening.
1: Okay. I clearly need to read more Agatha Christie, obviously. <laughs> now, tell
0: me, what are you reading right now? Well, uh, I'm probably like you in that I'm not reading just one book. I'm reading (laughs) multiple books. So uh, I'm – and I reread books many times. So I'm rereading Angela's Ashes right now, which is an oldie but a goodie.
1: Oh, gosh, Uh, I haven't read that in years. I love that book.
0: Yeah, I saw it on my bookshelf. I was looking for something else for a client, and I went – Angela's ashes. (laughs) So I took that out. And of course, I'm always you know, reading an Agatha Christie. But the one that I haven't yet cracked open that is on my – the next on the top of the pile is The Maid. It's it's another crime story. It's another mystery. Okay. You know, uh, I I run a book club. I have an online book club. And I fear that people on the book club are going to say she only ever recommends mysteries like (laughs) Nita Prose, The Maid by Nita Prose. Okay, so I haven't cracked the cover of that one yet, but that's that's when I'm going to read.
1: Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? You've mentioned your podcast a couple times, but um, I have we you, we haven't had the opportunity to actually talk about their names and what they're about. So, will you share all those details?
0: Yeah, anyone who wants to find out more about me can go to my website valeriefrances.ca. That's where everything is. My podcast is called Story Nerd, and as you can tell, I, I like to nerd out about stories. It's designed for anyone who loves stories in all forms and especially for writers because my, my co-host, Melanie Hill, and I, we actually look at a film every week because stories have the same structure, whether it's a novel or a film or a TV show or a play. We can talk about these storytelling concepts on a high level using a film, even if you're a novelist, because we'd never be able to read and analyze a novel every week. We just just never be able to do it. And listeners wouldn't be able to do it. But you can watch a film every week. So that's kind of what we do. Yes, yeah, so a story nerd, the podcast. And if anyone is on social media, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. Excellent. Well, this has been so much fun
1: talking to you, as I knew it would be. And I hope you will come <laughs> back anytime you have a book you want to tell me about. Because There's nothing better than talking to smart women about books. So I hope Absolutely. you'll come
0: back. <laughs> I certainly will. Thank you.
1: Okay, my vegetable marrow loving friends, I would love to hear what you think of this book and what your favorite Agatha Christie book is. Let me know on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. If you have a book you want to tell me about, click on the Be a Guest button on my website or Instagram bio so we can chat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your detective novel-loving friends and rate it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button. Thank you for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.
0: Yeah, they should stop Kenneth Branagh from doing Poirot. (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. Why? He's He's a terrible Poirot. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) He's a terrible Poirot. Love Kenneth Branagh. (laughs) He's a terrible Poirot.